Well, uh, if this is your first time joining us, you came on a great Sunday besides the you know, construction material and the ladders in the back left corner of the room. Um, it's a great Sunday because uh, we're starting a new series uh, titled The Cross of Christ, The Cross of Christ. And without a doubt, the cross is the central and most dominant symbol of the Christian faith. Now, Christianity has a lot of symbols. If you just go to a Christian bookstore, you'll see a bunch of memorabilia, all these different icons and symbols. You'll see t-shirts and and necklaces with with different icons, whether it's a dove, right, or a burning bush or a fish, right, Uh, those Jesus fishes that people used to always put on the back of their cars. But then we realized that, oh, you know, if you... If you, you know, change lanes or speed or jump in the HOV lane when you're by yourself and you have a Jesus fish on your car, it's a bad witness. So somewhere along, like I think it was at the turn of the millennium, we all were like, oh, we need to not put those Jesus fishes on our cars. But back when I was growing up, that was very, very popular. And so we're familiar with these symbols. But the central symbol of our faith is the cross. For Judaism, their symbol is the Star of David. For Islam, it's the Crescent. Uh, for Buddhists, it's the, the lotus flower. Right? Um, now, have you ever wondered why all these world religions seem to have uh, such key symbols associated with them? Right? Well, why, why are symbols so important to organizations, to religions, right? to even nations? Well, it's because there's something powerful about connecting an image to an identity. Right? To connect an image to an identity. To connect an image with a story. So these symbols, they tell a story, and these symbols unite individuals to a greater purpose, and it connects us to a greater narrative. Take, for instance, the American flag, right? Uh, I was going to like go PowerPoint and like throw all these images up on the screen, but I felt like that was going to be a little cheesy, so I decided not to. But just imagine, we all know what American flag looks like, right? 50 stars, 50 stars representing the 50 states, and 13 bars going across representing the 13 original colonies. So that's why in the South, we're always like, stars and bars, baby, stars and bars, right? Well, the flag, the moment we look at the flag, that is designed, that is a symbol for Americans, not only to connect us with one another as fellow citizens, as people in community, but to connect us to the past, to remember where we came from, to remember how this nation started and what our principles and what our values were. Or take, for instance, a retail company such as Nike, Everybody knows Nike's iconic symbol. It's the swoosh, right? It's the swoosh. But what makes the logo so clever is that it represents the wings of a Greek goddess uh, named Nike, right? And, and, and the symbol and what Nike was all about was victory, right? And so they realized, okay, that's an awesome name. That's an awesome symbol. Let's make a logo. And it's perfect so that every time you see the swoosh, you're identifying with victory. And for an athletic company, that is brilliant branding, right guys? Brilliant branding. We got a symbol, you got a story, it unites us. That's what happens. But did you know that the cross was not always the symbol for Christianity, right? It wasn't the dominant central symbol, our logo per se, for Christianity. Certainly not in the days of the early church. In fact, uh, early on, the primary symbols were the dove, right? Representing the Holy Spirit and reminding us of, of the peace of God. Or the fish, right? The fish was used not for like Jesus, like multiplying fish or being fishers of men, but it was an acronym uh, for Jesus' name in uh, the Greek. So those were two dominant symbols for the church. 
Did you guys know even for a period of time, uh, the peacock was used amongst early Christians because the peacock symbolized immortal life, immortality. And so they're like, oh yeah, Christians have eternal life. Let's, Let's use the peacock as our symbol. Right? Um, thank God the church phased that one out. I mean, imagine not a cross, but a peacock, like right behind me. Right? Uh, NBC can, can keep the peacock. Um, so, uh, but the main reason why the church was so slow to adopt the cross as its central symbol was because it was a symbol of shame. It was a symbol of persecution. The cross was associated with the heinous execution of criminals in Rome. Historians note that the crucifixion was considered the most cruel method of execution ever practiced. It was actually something that barbarians came up with, and when the Greeks and Romans saw it, they were like, that is genius, right? That is genius, it was terrible. And so they adopted it. The Romans didn't even create it. They saw barbarians use it, and they were like, that is so terrible, so terrifying, that we're going to punish our worst criminals with that kind of execution. It was painful and terrible because this wasn't like a hanging. This wasn't a beheading that happened in a moment. Men would experience days of suffering, hanging on the cross. A man would bleed out from his hands and his feet, desperately fighting for each breath as his lungs filled with water and with blood. In the winter, he's exposed to the cold. In the summer, he's exposed to the heat. See, not only was it painful, it was shameful as well. On top of a hill, for everyone to see, in his nakedness, in his scorn, in his shame. The Romans reserved crucifixion for individuals who were guilty of murder, rebellion, treason, or or armed robbery. And did you guys know only slaves or foreigners were to be crucified? Crucifixion was so terrible and so looked down upon that the Roman government said, Roman citizens shall not be crucified. It's beneath us, right? They said no free man, no man with dignity should ever experience crucifixion. So they reserved that for the slaves, for the non-persons, for their enemies, for their foreigners. Well, not only did the Romans regard crucifixion with horror, but the Jews did as well. But theirs were for religious reasons. You see, Deuteronomy 21.23 states that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Right? If you're hung on a tree, if you die on a tree, you are under the curse of God. And the Jews considered crucifixion being hung on a tree. That if you were crucified, it's because you were cursed by God. And so for the Jews, it was bad enough to be killed by the Romans but even worse, to be cursed by God. So how did this terrible, heinous, shameful symbol become our central symbol as Christians? It was by reflecting on the meaning of the gospel and understanding what it meant to boast in the cross, what it meant to understand the mission, the purpose, and the power of Jesus Christ. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, he writes this. He says, Christians wished to commemorate as central to their understanding of Jesus, neither his birth nor his youth, neither his teaching nor his service, neither his resurrection or reign nor his gift of the Spirit, but his death, his crucifixion. See, Christians understood that what was central to the message of Jesus 
wasn't just his sermon on the mount. wasn't just the fact that he promises a peace that transcends all understanding. It was the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross and took our place. The title of today's sermon is Approaching the Cross. Approaching the Cross. And, and as we come to the cross, as we start our series on the cross of Christ, I want us to see three things today. First, the centrality of the cross. Right? The centrality of the cross. Second, the responsibility for the cross. Right? Why did Jesus die? Who killed Jesus? And thirdly, we're going to look at faith in the cross. So the centrality, the responsibility, and faith all in the cross as we approach Jesus uh, in this Easter season. Well, if you read through the Gospels, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that the focus of the Gospels isn't the birth or youth of Jesus. In fact, very little is said. In fact, Mark and John don't even have those birth stories, right? The infancy narratives, those are only found in Matthew and Luke. And so you'll you'll quickly see that it's not about baby Jesus, right? It's not about Jesus growing up. The Gospels are not about his family. We know very little about Jesus's family, his brothers. We know his mom's name is Mary, his dad's name is Joseph. And then after the birth, Joseph like disappears. Like what happened? We just assume he must have passed away while Jesus was young or something. We know hardly anything about his family. We know hardly anything about his upbringing except for the fact that, that he grew up in wisdom and in stature. And though his teaching and his miracles are major parts of each book, like I mentioned earlier, the real focus of each of the gospel messages is the cross. It's the cross of Christ. Theologians have called each of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not histories, right? Um, It's not law. It's not poetry. They call them passion narratives. Passion narratives. And passion is not meant as like emotion, like like we use it today. It means suffering. It's the, the narrative about the suffering of Jesus. It's the story that all leads up to the cross of Christ. They climax on the persecution and the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, when you study the mission of Jesus, you'll see in the Gospels that his mission wasn't merely to teach and to heal, though his teaching was unlike anyone had ever heard in this world. Though his power and ability to heal was unlike anyone ever ever had, his mission was not to teach and to heal, it was to die. His purpose wasn't to gain political power and popularity. His purpose was to go to the cross. In Jesus' perspective, the cross stands out as central to his ministry. And if it's central to his ministry, it must be central to our faith. I'm just going to read three passages out of Mark. They come out of Mark 8, 9, and 10. And they're kind of Jesus' self-disclosure to his disciples about what his ministry, what his mission, what's going to happen to him, what it's all about. And so the first one is this, Mark 8, 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And the next verse says, and he said these things plainly. So he was just saying, like, Jesus wasn't being mysterious. He wasn't being subtle. He wasn't using odd, like, culture to kind of, like, suggest something. He was, no, 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 no. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to die. I'm going to die, and three days, rise again. In chapter, a chapter later, In chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus tells his disciples, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he will rise. 
And then in the very next chapter, Mark 10, 45, Jesus famously declares, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What do we see in these three passages? We see that Jesus understood that he must suffer and that he must die. This wasn't like, oh, it might happen if you guys jack me, right? Or if things don't really work out, I might end up on the cross. No, Jesus understood that his mission, his purpose was to go to the cross. It was required. It was what the Father commissioned him to do. He knew this and he did not shrink from his mission. The Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be a suffering servant, that the Messiah would be a lamb that is led into slaughter, that the Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. So this is why God the Father sent his only beloved and begotten son to die on the cross for the sins of the world. Now, church, what does this mean for us? Okay. Um, I, I mean, if you spend a lot of time in church, you're like, okay, I get that. It's all about Jesus, and it's all about the cross. That's cool. Well, let's, let's make this relevant. It means that we can't reduce Jesus to a moral teacher, okay? It means that you can't just use Jesus to offer you wisdom and guidance. Too many of us are like, Jesus, help me out. I need to figure out what to do, who to date, where to go, what job to take. You know, should I buy this house? Should I rent? Whatever it might be. We're like, Jesus, help me. And we treat Jesus as our personal counselor, our guidance counselor, to give us instruction. Now, here's the thing. Jesus can, and Jesus will, and, 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 and he loves to do that. But if that is Jesus' primary role in your life, if that's your relationship to Jesus, you've missed Jesus. It also means we can't just look to Jesus as somebody who will heal our sickness if we cry out to him and put our faith in him. And guys, the longer we live, the more sorrow and heartache we experience at the hands of sickness, death, and decay. That is just a fact. And if you believe that Jesus' purpose is to have somebody to, to cry out to, to hope, to pray for a miracle and say, Jesus, help us. Don't let my father die. Don't let my spouse be sick. Don't let my children you know, struggle, Jesus, help. If that is all you cry out to Jesus for, if that's all you expect from Jesus, if that's all you need from Jesus, you're like, Jesus, I got all of the other stuff. It's just when I need a miracle, I need you. If that is your relationship to Jesus, you've missed Jesus as well. You see, we have so many, we, there are so many ways we truncate the person of Jesus in our lives. We need teaching, Jesus. We need a healing. We need miracle, Jesus. Or maybe he's just, you're like, you know what? I'm beyond all of that, right? Maybe he's just your example, right? He is your role model. And so you're all about WWJD, the bracelet. And so you know what? Jesus is my example. The way that Jesus lived, I'm gonna live. The way that Jesus served, I'm gonna serve, right? Jesus was radical, I'm gonna be radical. Jesus was sacrificial, I'm gonna be sacrificial. And so Jesus is your role model. And, and so you are all about pursuing Jesus and becoming like Jesus. And that sounds spiritual, that sounds good, that sounds, sounds true. But even then, if that's all Jesus is for you, kind of a goal, 
someone to aspire to become, an example for you, you too have missed Jesus. Hear that. His primary role in your life is not to be your example. His primary purpose in your life is to be your savior, is to be your redeemer. You see, church, there is no knowing Jesus apart from the cross. There is no knowing Jesus apart from the cross. There is no following Christ apart from him giving his life for you. You see, Jesus does want you to follow him. He does want you to become like him. But you know what has to happen first? And you know what has to be central? The fact that Jesus has given his life for you. But here's the thing. We're not always good at receiving this. Even Peter, when Peter heard that Jesus was gonna die and three days later rise again in Mark 8, you know what he did? Peter rebuked Jesus. And Mark was kind of smart. He didn't actually record all the things that Peter said because that would have been crazy, right? But imagine that. You having the audacity to say, Jesus, you're wrong. Jesus, you're being foolish. Jesus, you know, that, that's not the way it's gonna be. Jesus, you must have misunderstood the will of God. But I don't know what it was, but he rebuked Jesus. And you know what Jesus did? Jesus rebuked him back. Awkward. <laughs> he rebuked him back and, and Jesus went harsh. He said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, because your mind, your heart is not on the things of God. They're on the things of this world. They're on the things of man. If you will not accept me as your savior, if you will not accept me as the one who will go to the cross, you just want me to be your older brother. You want me to be your teacher. You want me to be your example. You want me to be your your leader and Lord. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because that is not the will and heart of God. That's what Jesus says to Peter, and that's what he's saying to us as well. Central to you and I in our relationship to Jesus must be the cross. One theologian wrote, what dominated Jesus' mind was not the living of his life, but the giving of his life, right? Jesus didn't come to, to live it up and have everything and just enjoy life on earth. No, he came to give his life for us. So church, before Jesus can become your purpose and your passion, he must first become your ransom and your redeemer. This is how we must approach the cross. To know that the cross is central to the mission of Jesus. To know that the cross is central to our faith. The second thing we need to consider is not just the centrality of the cross, but it's the responsibility for the cross. The responsibility for the cross. Now, if we were to ask, why did Jesus die? Or specifically, who killed Jesus, right? Who is responsible for his death? How would you guys respond? Like first, you're like, Judas, right? <laughs> Judas, that guy, that guy. Next, like Pontius Pilate, right? And the third, like the, 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 the Jewish scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you may not know what they are, but you know they're bad dudes, right? And so we would think that. Now, there's always two sides to this answer, the divine and the human. On the divine side, we know that Jesus died because the Father commissioned him to the cross. God, out of his sovereignty, sent his son to die on the cross. We know that Jesus died because Jesus tells us in John, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it up, right? So Jesus himself gave himself. He gave his life for us. So that's the divine side. But let's consider the human side, the human sin, the human responsibility in the passion, the persecution and the death of Jesus. And so in the gospel, we see those three main characters at fault. Pontius Pilate, 
the Jewish leaders, and Judas Iscariot. Now, the one immediately responsible for Jesus' death was the Roman government, right? It was the Roman government. It was Pontius Pilate because Pontius was the one who sentenced Jesus to death. He could have gone the other way. They could have went with Barabbas, but instead Pontius said Jesus, right? And the Romans were literally the ones who were nailing him to the cross. They were carrying out the crucifixion. Pilate was a Roman governor and he had the authority to dismiss and excuse Jesus. And although he questioned Jesus over and over again and found Jesus to be innocent, he shrunk from the pressure that he received from the Jewish leaders. You see, he was like, I want to let you go, but these Jewish leaders are about to incite a riot. And so what Pontius Pilate does is he stands before the Jews. He's like, you guys have it wrong, but you guys are going so crazy, so insane right now. I'm going to wash my hands of his blood. It's on you. And so he sentenced Jesus to death. Well, the Apostles' Creed says, well, you know what? Pontius, you're still responsible. And so we declare that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The second group that was responsible for Jesus' death were the Jewish leaders, those Pharisees, those scribes, those Sadducees. And out of envy and foolishness, they considered Jesus a blasphemer. Because Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to have the forgiveness or power to forgive sins. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. There's so many things that Jesus did that seemed counter to their practices, their preferences, and their ways. And so what the Jewish leaders did was they took him to trial. They despised the fact that he was a greater teacher than them. They despised the fact that he was growing in popularity and influence. And so though the crucifixion was the work of Rome, it was the will of the Jews, okay? It was the work of Rome, but it was the will of the Jews. And this is why Peter rebukes the men of Israel in his great sermon at Pentecost in Acts. This is what Peter says. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. That was Barabbas. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Peter's calling out his own people. He was a Jew. He says, we the Jews, you guys chose Barabbas over Jesus. You killed the author of life. You killed the Holy One. The third person responsible for Jesus' death was Judas Iscariot. He was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. And out of greed, he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. You know what 30 pieces of silver was? That's the price of a common slave. That was Jesus' worth to Judas. The price of a common slave. And out of greed, he betrayed his master, his Lord, with a kiss. And you know what that tells us? that tells us so much of the sorrow and pain of Jesus. Not only that he was killed in a government that, that, that should have protected him for he was innocent, not only that he was killed by his own people, the people that he came to save, Jesus was the Messiah, but his own people killed him, but he was killed and betrayed by his own friend, one of his closest friends, someone that traveled with him, journeyed with him, lived with him day and night for years. Judas, his friend, 
betrayed him. Now, we might consider that's the end of the matter. Those three guys, right? Big trouble. Special place in hell for those guys, right? But there's one more group responsible for the death of Christ, and that's us. We are responsible for the death of Christ. We cannot be like Pilate and try to wash our hands of the Lord's death. The truth is that we are guilty as well, and we certainly would have done what the Jews and the Romans and Judas did. The truth is that uh, Hebrews 6 tells us that whenever we turn away from Christ, we are crucifying once again the Son of God to our own harm and holding him up to contempt. That's what happens, guys. When we turn away from Jesus, we crucify him again. We kill him with our hearts. We kill him with our decisions. We kill him with our behavior. We're saying, Jesus, you are dead to us because just like Judas, I want money. I'm gonna choose greed and ambition over Jesus. And we're crucifying him again. Just like Pilate, whenever we want the approval of men, whenever we fear the, the opinions of men and we're like, oh my gosh, uh, what are they gonna think of me? I need to be popular. I need to be loved. I need to be respected. I need to be accepted. Whenever we choose that over Christ, we are crucifying again our Lord. When we choose to have our own ways, our own lives, when we choose to dominate and have power over our own decisions, our families, we're being just like the Jewish leaders who are more religious, who are more about their control, about their interpretations, how they thought the righteous and the good life was supposed to be. Well, when you choose that over Jesus, you're crucifying him again. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, because that's what we sing about. That's what we pray about. We say, thank you for the cross, Jesus. Thank you for dying for us. What you and I need to do is realize it's something done by us. You and I, though we were not physically there 2,000 years ago at Calvary, we over and over again crucify Christ in our hearts, in our lives, with our decisions. And should we go back in time, we would join them in the mocking, in the jeering, in the hating, in the contempt. Horatius Bonar, a great Scottish theologian and hymn writer, he wrote a song which confesses this entire heart. This is what he said. "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own." That is us, church. We are responsible for crucifying the Lord to the cross. And this is so important because as we approach the cross, as we approach Jesus, we must approach with humility, with repentance, with responsibility. Friends, did you know if it wasn't for our sins, Jesus has no reason to go to the cross. He has no reason to be a ransom. He has no reason to die, but it is because of our sins because of a debt that we have incurred that we could not pay, that's why Jesus had to go to the cross. And so this should produce in us grief, godly grief that leads us to repentance. You see, it's a dangerous thing for you and I to ask Jesus to forgive our sins through the cross without realizing that he's on the cross because of those sins. Okay, Just think about that. Do you often 
reflect upon that truth. It is your sin that sent Jesus to the cross. That needs to be part of our rhythm, of our confession, of our relationship with him. Jesus isn't just a solution to our sin. He died as a substitute for our sins. So in our third and final point today, after the centrality of the cross, after our responsibility for the cross, the third point we want to look at is faith in the cross. What does it mean for us to to now come to him? What does it mean for us to approach the cross just as we are, even when we are weak and weary? And here's the point today. The Lord is inviting us, just as we are weak and weary, to come to the cross, to come to know him. In Mark 9, there's an incredible encounter between Jesus and a father. I think it's one of the the most powerful stories in in the Gospels. And a father, he has a son. He has a son, and he's been suffering with demon possession. And because of this demon possession, his son cannot speak anymore. He's mute. And then he would break down into seizures and convulsions. And the father even goes on to say that, you know, there are times when this demon is trying to kill my son. And so he's caused him to fall out into water or convulse and seizure into fire. And he's had to save him. And he's so worried. And and Jesus asks, how long has this been going on? And he's like, ever since he was a boy. And the moment the son is brought into Jesus's presence, the spirit is like, oh my gosh, this is the son of God. And he knows it. And boom, the son breaks into a convulsion again, breaks into seizures again, right before the father's eyes, as he's telling the story in the presence of Jesus. Now the disciples, they were not able to cast out this demon, right? The father went to the disciples first and the disciples like, dude, this one's above our pay grade, right? We're, we're like entry level, like spiritual warfare, we need to go straight to Jesus, right? So the disciples were not able to cast out the evil spirit. And so this desperate father has come to Jesus. And in Mark 9, 22, we see the father desperately crying out to Jesus. And he says this, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, Just like, kind of like, if, right? Do you know who you're talking to? And he says, all things are possible for one who believes. And the father's response was beautiful. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Church, these are some of the most honest words spoken to Jesus in all of the Gospels. I believe it reflects the struggle that exists inside so many of us. If I asked you, do you believe in God? I think most of you would say yes. I'd say, well, let's tell me what you believe about him. You believe he's good? Say yes, we believe he's good. Do you believe he's loving? Yes, of course. I learned that one in vacation Bible school. Do you believe he is sovereign in control of all things? But yes, I believe in a sovereign God. Do you believe he can do anything? That he is almighty? You'd be like, yep, that one's called omnipotent. Right? Be like, oh, dude, theologian, theologian, that's great. We have all these beliefs and we know those things like deep in our hearts, right? But here's the thing. Our days and our decisions are filled with unbelief. Are, are they not? Don't you struggle with trusting a God who will provide for you 
Maybe finances are tight. Maybe you're worried and stressed about your job or your family and you're about to lose your home and you're just like, I believe, but help my unbelief. Maybe right now you are burdened with caring for somebody you love who is sick and ill and you know that, that God is good. You know he has a plan for all these things. You know that, 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 that Jesus promises promises never to leave nor forsake us. And right now though, you're like, but I just don't feel like God is with us. I don't feel like God is hearing our prayers. I don't see light at the end of the tunnel. I know I'm supposed to, but there is so much unbelief in our hearts, in our lives. Isn't this us? We believe. Help, help our unbelief, God. I think that's a prayer. We need to have the honesty and integrity and the courage to pray to Jesus today. And here's the thing. Jesus knows your unbelief. He knows it. You just don't admit it, right? And we're ashamed of it. We're like, oh my gosh, I'm like a small group leader. I shouldn't have unbelief. I'm a pastor. I shouldn't have unbelief. I'm a deacon or an elder. Like, like oh man, if my spouse knew all of the doubts that I had, like, would they judge me, right? If my friends knew all of the struggles and the doubts and the trust issues that I had, would they think less of me? And so we hide these unbeliefs. But what Jesus is telling us today through this interaction with this father, he knows your unbelief. He knows your struggle. He knows your fears. And you know what he does after? This man says, oh, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus doesn't, come at him and rebuke him. You know what Jesus does? He helps his unbelief. He answers his prayer. He loves him. He heals the boy. Immediately, he commands the, the spirit to come out of the boy. The spirit is, is out. The boy is healed. And all are witnessing the son of God and his almighty power. Church, today, you can approach the cross you, in all of your doubts, in all of your unbelief, in all of your struggles, in all of your fears, Jesus saying, come to the cross. Come to me and allow me to help you in your unbelief. Allow me to strengthen you in your unbelief. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus does not save. He does not bless based on the strength of your belief. Once again, there's that parable of, of the mustard seed. You know why that's true? It's because this mustard seed faith, this, literally this father had a mustard seed faith. I got one, but it's this big. That mustard seed faith was rightly placed at the foot of the cross. That faith was rightly placed, not in a physician, right? not in some quack doctor or healer, not in his friends, not in his ability to care for his son. The father placed that mustard seed faith in the hands of Christ. And Jesus was a strong savior. Jesus was a great helper. Jesus was this father's redeemer. And that's what we are invited to do today. Would you consider Jesus, who he is again, remember him. And if there are doubts that are dividing your beliefs and your actions, say, Jesus, help my unbelief. Help me not just to talk about what I believe, but help me to live it out. Help me to live a life of faith. 
Help me to live and make decisions based on your promises, your truth, on what will glorify you. Help me to do that. And our Lord today is saying, come. And he will help. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you give us your word that is such an encouragement to us. We thank you that your word is a light into our path, that your word is a double-edged sword that pierces our hearts. God, I pray, Lord, that today that there would be a repentance and a grief and a brokenness in many of us as we recognize that we too are responsible for the death of your son, Jesus. That our hands are not clean, that we are not innocent. We bear that guilt. God, would you have mercy on us? But Father, I pray that that you wouldn't leave us in our guilt today. That you would remind us of your love and your hope and your power through Jesus Christ who died on that cross for us as our ransom. God, would you liberate us from our sin? Would you free us from our shame? Would you keep us from trying to save ourselves? Keep us from trying to save our families? And help us to realize that Christ alone is our Savior.